Okay, good morning, everyone. And uh, it's such a privilege to come and lead this final session. Uh, we're going to be talking again from Acts 2, verse 42. So let me just start by reminding us of that text. Uh, so it says this. It says, And they, those first disciples, those first, that first church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it's a real honor to come and speak to you about the breaking of bread today. And there's one question, there's one filter that I want you to put this through, and it is, what are we to make of the Lord's Supper? What is it that we are supposed to be doing when we break bread? And uh, if you, you see these stations that we have here, we're going to take the Lord's Supper at the, the end of this message. And I want to just, just look at that right now. I want you, by the end of this, to be wanting that more than you've ever wanted it. Because of, because of something the Lord has said. I'm going to teach you, I'm going to do the best I can, I promise. But I want, I want the Lord to speak. I want God to drop something in our hearts today of the importance, the centrality of this special Lord's Supper, this special meal that we're going to share in together. And I want you to want it more than you've ever wanted it. And I want you to want it for other people as well. I want, I want that to be the net effect of this. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying I really want you to drum something up. No, I want something to happen here today. It's a prayer. I'm praying right now. I want, I want this to go deep in us. I want this to be what we, when, when we go back and we're speaking to family, speaking to friends, speaking to colleagues, I want us to be thinking, I want them around the table with me. I want them to be participating in this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about just why that is. Um, what, what we're to make of the Lord's Supper is important. So People have made different things of it over the course of history. You've got to say that this first church, what did they make of it? That's the primal question, isn't it? What did these guys make of it when they're breaking bread? They're devoted to it for a start. So they're clearly like, this is a must. This is central. It doesn't say they're devoted to singing, devoted to other things. It seems that they did those things. But this is the centerpiece of Christian worship. And it always has been. And it's been misinterpreted. It's been done wrong in different ways. And I, I don't want us to fall into traps. I think we live at a, a time of advantage when we can look back and see different things that have happened. But I want us to get to the kernel, the core of what's meant by this supper. So this primitive church, the first church, a charismatic group, you know, don't, don't worry if that comes with some freight for you. They, they, they are charismatic in the sense that they're rolling in the gift of God. They're feeling that they are a graced community. They have been brought into something uh, completely sovereignly, and God has done it. He's the one who's brought them into it, and at the heart of it is this givenness of God. Lord, the Lord Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, he said that this is my body which is given for you, which is for you. And he lifts the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is for you. He's talking about a constant disposition of givenness, of towardness, never withheldness for his people. And there's an intimacy that goes along with it. So it's very, uh, very primal, very intimate, and it's like essential, a vital thing that's going on. It's not a ritual. But then you know, if you know anything of church history, that it becomes more ritualistic as time goes on. It's interesting to note that for the first six centuries of Christian history, in Christian art, there's no... There's practically no depiction at all of the crucifixion. That's six centuries. That's a really long time. You know, 
It's, it's like back to a Dutch golden age, and it's that kind of distance in history. And what they did have was the supper, central. So it's not like they don't remember the death and resurrection of the Lord, but it's, it's not depicted like that. It is lived. It's something participated in. It becomes something more ritualistic. And the Reformation, if, if there's one thing the Reformation was about, what would you say it was? Yes, authority of scripture. It's a recovery of that. More fundamentally than that, it's a recovery of true worship to the church. It's a recovery of, of the place of scripture in this, but it's a recovery of right use of the elements, right use of baptism, right use of, uh, of the Lord's Supper. It's recovery of true worship to the church. And there's been various times where that, that has been readdressed uh, but I would say we live at a time of what I would call sacramental weakness in this, this strain of Protestantism and other, other areas of the church. And what I mean by that is that if you have two things that you could think of as going on in the supper, there's, there's plenty of others, but the idea of meeting with Jesus, literally meeting with Jesus, and the idea of remembering Jesus, and you have a kind of scale here. There's always a tendency, and I think you know, to swing the pendulum to one end or the other. You could talk about the Catholic transubstantiation of the elements becoming literally and physically the body and blood of Jesus so as being right at the end of meeting with Jesus. You know, you could think that that's the most serious form of being able to meet with Jesus. I'm going to argue there's something more serious than that. But then you could say for, of us that we have a propensity to just go to the remembering end. And by remembering, I don't mean recollecting and reliving, I just mean remembering, like doing a pop quiz in your head of all the things I can remember about the crucifixion, and actually going through how well uh, can I bring to mind these, these events. So what I want to do is speak under three headings about what I think is actually going on here in the supper. Food, firstly, food. The second one's going to be family. The third one is a fanfare. Okay, So I have three, three Fs for you there. Let me just first read this quote from um, the, the Protestant theologian uh, Leonard Fondeze, who says, Ask most any Protestant about the meaning of the supper, and you will hear the word remembrance. The problem is that, that, uh, that a too simplistic understanding of the Lord's command has limited the meaning of the sacrament in the minds of many to the recollection of a long-ago historical event. It tends to place the weight of the sacramental meaning in the minds, hearts, and faith of the participant as he or she struggles to remember with faith and gratitude what the Lord did for them on the cross. Rather than coming as a gift, it comes as a mental exercise, an act of pious, prayerful reflection. In that sense, the supper offers the believer not a gift of grace, but a mere reminder of grace, not an assuring seal of God's forgiveness, but a distant memory of its basis, not a union with the risen and living Christ, but a memory of him. This represents a fundamental diminution of the sacrament's meaning and intent. Now, that sounds like you're being told off a bit, doesn't it? It's not. It's to say, there's more for you. There's more for you. There's more for me this morning when we come to the table. There is more to be experienced of the Lord. There is more of that givenness that he promises. That orientation always to be given for the sake of his own. Never withheld. Okay? So when I say here then, firstly, that it's our food, let me just... Let this resonate in your mind, that our theology decides our experience. 
Our theology decides our experience. Decides, do you know, if you trace that word etymologically, decide, killing options. If you decide, you know, it's like you know, suicide, kill yourself, you know, side. Uh, I'm not, that's not a command, by the way. Uh, but, but decide. You are, you're cutting off options. You are, you are delimiting the, the possible range of options that you have. Theology decides experience. And, you know, don't read that back the other way. Then we shouldn't have theology because then we'll have all the experience. No, it, it, it builds the container. It, it builds the framework through which you expect Okay, the framework of things that you can expect to encounter. So this is going to be us expanding the extent of our expectation in the supper. So firstly, it's food. This is, this is implicit in the, the name the Lord's Supper. So each of these has something implied. The Lord's Supper is the food. We talk about it as communion, doing it together. Okay, the togetherness, the family aspect. And fanfare that you talk about Eucharist, a thanksgiving, a public thanksgiving that's going on. Calvin says, Jesus Christ is the only food by which our souls are nourished. And he says furthermore, it's indeed true that this same grace is offered us by the gospel, yet as in the supper we have more ample certainty and fuller enjoyment of it. With good cause do we recognize this fruit as coming from it. He says elsewhere that that the gospel that you hear preached to your ears is preached to your other senses in the supper. He's saying that's what's happening. That there is, you know, you know, if you hear a sermon, if someone tells you something and it's more than the sum of its parts, so you get revelation of Jesus, you realize that the Spirit is ministering Christ to you in that moment. That's, co- that's coming to you through sound waves being vibrated by someone talking and something much more than the sum of its parts is happening because of one of your senses being receptive to it. That's, we are receptors, we receive in different ways. We receive by taste. We receive by physically ingesting these elements. And God has promised that he, is, he will minister his gospel to us through these as well. He said this is part of your inheritance. It's for our health. You know, you might not think that this bread and juice here is, is a particularly nourishing thing in the physical, but let me assure you there is a lot going on here. Jesus says in uh, John 6, verses 53 to 56, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him or her up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. It's real food. And my blood is real drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now it goes on to say that he lost a lot of followers that day. It suddenly got very intense, very personal. You want us to eat you. I I love going through John's gospel with my daughters because they ask all the right questions. And they react as the people in the gospels react. You read Nicodemus's story. You've got to be born again. They're like, whoa. And Nicodemus says, like, I've got to go find my mom. This is going to be awkward for everyone. <laughs> this is, you know, and they, they say the same thing. They, like, my, my second daughter just literally laughed when I said, you've got to be born again. She's like, no. <laughs> born, born again. And I don't think she was resisting the spirit. I, th- I, think, I think actually she heard it right. No, this is crazy, right? And Jesus, if you read the Nicodemus story, just kind of brushes it off. Like, anyway, carries on. Just, it's like, no, you've got to be born of uh, you've got to be born of the water and the spirit. That's that's what's going to happen for you. Here, 
he lays it down. He says, no, you, you've got to be embarrassingly close. You've got, you've got to be right in, and I, I will be in you. You'll be in me. I, I will participate in you. You will participate in me. If you've uh, played the game The Sims, I'm sure many of you have, uh, you, you'll know that there are various status bars for how each of your sims are doing. You have actually eight different bars. That's uh, their hunger, their comfort, their bladder, uh, their energy, their fun, their social, their hygiene, and their environment. And if any of these start going below a certain level, they get sad. They get sad. They, they, you know, bad things happen. They just go dragging their feet around. And uh, it, it's not good for them. This is what Jesus means when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This, like, now, okay, let's just go back to applications. How often should we do the supper? Well, once in a while, you know, every now and then, token gesture, a bit of a nod to the past. No, no, like, if, if we take our Lord seriously, this is true food. This is true blood. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I will minister to you in this. Now you can take this too far. You can say, okay, this becomes the body. When the priest holds it up, says, hocus enim corpus meum. That's it. He's done the magic. Now God has submitted to the priest, and the priest can do what he wishes with it. Half a truth is always more dangerous than a lie, isn't it? Okay? There's, there's a reputation that that's where the phrase hocus pocus came from. It's like people who didn't understand Latin sitting in a mass hear a guy say that, and he's like, oh yeah, he does that bit, hocus pocus, and then, and then <laughs> hands it out, and the, and the magic happens, you know. And I'm sure, you know, because God deals with us, doesn't he? He deals with us. I'm sure God ministers to people's faith as they, as they, as they reach towards that. Let us not fall off the horse on the other side and just say, oh, it's just a mem- memorial, it's just a remembrance. It's a, just an intellectual remembrance. I, I want to say it is a remembrance, but it's a bringing to memory. It's, it's like, you know, that word recollection, where you recollect and recall. Recall's good, where you call it back. It's real in the present. That sort of remembrance, that's fine. So this is uh, the food aspect. Um, we have the triune God ministering himself to us. In John 6, 57, 58, it says, as the li- Jesus says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so who fi- whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. There it is again. He's promising life. He's promising nourishment. Don't start trying to work it out. Don't start trying to say, oh, how's he going to do that? He said he's going to do it. He said he's going to do it. Do you, do you understand half of the ways that God provides for you? Half of the ways that he feeds you? Half of the ways that he releases you, heals you? No. No, not even half, not even nearly. Take him at his word. Devote yourself to the apostles' doctrine. This is what the Lord says. He says, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the manna in the desert. They ate that and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Praise God. That's, that's us. That's what we're being called into. And we can get so, uh, some of us will get so binary on saved, not saved, things like that. And forget about living day to day. Forget about being given life in all its fullness, process-wise, all of your life, all of your eternity. Let's not forget that. You know, it's great to be converted. It's great to be full of life. It's great to be filled with life every time you come. Every time you come to the table, 
promise. It's there for you. It is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how good you are, how bad you are, how happy you are, how sad you are. When you come to the table, and you can really think that, you know, I, I can't come to the table, I can't do this because I, I'm, I'm down. There are things that might withhold you. I'll talk about those. But they're not those. It's not to do with your spiritual quality. You come for grace. That's what you come for. You come for a gift. When you come for any other grace, do you try and work for it? No. You come to receive. You come with arms open, with mouth open in this case. It's not an exercise then in worthiness or a pop quiz in how much you know about the crucifixion, how many... Uh, do you have masterminds? You know, it's like mastermind questions where you sit in a chair and someone just grills you about it. No, it's not that. It's not are you recalling rightly it's do you need him do you want him he's there he's eternally given he wants to be given for you so you come with faith and by faith I just simply mean trust trust it like the problem with the word faith is people now use it without ever saying faith in and then giving you some an object something that they have faith in you can use it without that which is weird I think people a couple of centuries ago they wouldn't understand if you say yeah I've got my faith you know in what? Like, simple question. So whenever I preach in Brighton, I tend to talk about trust whenever the word comes up because people still can't use the word trust without saying what it's in. So if you say, oh, no, I have my trust, do you? Let's talk about what it's in, okay? Because if it's in the Lord, fair enough. Like faith is always in something in scripture, right? So uh, you come with trust in the Lord and his word that he is given for you. He, he, the promise that it says that, as Paul says, like, as often as you do this in the present, you remember the Lord's death in the past until he comes again in the future. So when is it for? All time. All time. It's our lot. It is our experience. It is our life. That is what we are centered around. It is uh, family. As I said, this is the, the way that we describe it is sometimes communion. You might use that terminology, you might not. Lots of churches do, and they talk about it as communion because it's a mark of our membership and participation in the body of Christ. It's one of those marks like baptism being, being sort of the initiation into the church. You have uh, listening to preaching. You have obedience to leadership as well, being, under, uh, being open to being disciplined by the church. These are marks of what it is to be a member. And it's good to think about your part on the journey of being formed as a church right now. We don't have an eldership here at the moment, but one day that will be the case. There will be, be shepherds who are recognized by the community to, as being raised up by God, as being put in place as gifts to serve the, the church of God, to see people established for works of service. And you'll have membership. You'll have uh, membership, and that will include marks of membership taking the Lord's Supper. It'd be weird if you came to Liberty often and you took the Lord's Supper and you weren't a member. You know what I mean? That, that it, would, it, it starts to mark out the family resemblance. I mean, it's not to say like your friend visits and they're a lovely Christian friend. You don't say not, the table's not for you. No. But if you, if you were local in Amsterdam and you were coming along and you weren't a member and you were taken from the Lord's Supper, then there's an aspect of it that you're missing. It's not like a, a dreadful sin. But there's an aspect being missed. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16, verse 17 says this. Beautiful verse again. Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless. Cup of blessing that we bless. We bless it. We say that, you know, 
Thank you, Lord, for this. Bless it to us. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's the togetherness aspect. That's kind of the horizontal, if you like. That's a serious one to get hold of for us individualists, where we're very used to privatizing the me and Jesus aspect. Songs encourage it. Our culture encourages it. Let's break it. <laughs> let's, let's, let's actually say, no, there's something beautiful in going up to the table with a brother, with a sister, praying together, take the supper. You're gathered around the table of the Lord together. It says that we bless. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. Because there's one given Lord, he makes the many one, brings them into himself to participate with all their diversity in a unity that you could never manufacture, in a a divine unity brought into the very life of God together. And you start to see what a privilege this mark of church membership is. It's not just that you've been badged up, or now you're a member. No, you've been incorporated. You know, corpus, body, incorporated, brought in, given, given a family. You don't choose your family, but they are for your blessing. And God, God does it so that we come together around the table of the Lord. So I did say earlier that things might prevent you from the table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six to 29 says, for as often as you eat this uh, bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, the time aspect. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he doesn't judge the body rightly. He doesn't discern the body. Now, you could get worried at this point. It's, you, should. you should. You should think about that, shouldn't you? I don't think you should worry yourself sick. Let's, let's just uh, unpick it slightly. But you should read that. It says you eat and drink judgment to yourself if you just do this casually. If you look at it and say, oh, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. Or uh, in, in the context, he's talking about doing it selfishly. I don't think we're so much in danger of that. I, I don't know what you're like, but I don't know how many people just go up and gorge the bread. Uh, he's, he's talking about people loading up on bread and drinking wine. And um, one of my interns pointed out to me that rather comically, he says, eat before you come out. Eat, eat before you turn up so that you don't just turn up and like, oh, the wine. <laughs> Okay, well, clearly it's a, it's a good reminder, but there is that sense of not discerning the body of Christ, the church. Not just discerning that this is God's givenness and Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, but we can forget about the church. We can go into that individual mode and not worry about the fact that there's a division. We can worry about the fact, you, can, you just bracket the fact that you've fallen out with someone that you haven't forgiven someone, that really you need to actually, rather than go to the table, go out and make a call. Just say, I'm sorry about that. I need to just tell you I did this, whatever. You know, Get clear in your conscience. Recognize, discern, judge the body as well, this body, because this is the body of Christ. So there's recognizing what Jesus has done in it, but also recognizing the dynamic of it. 
that this is for the people of God. This is life for the people of God. And it makes a mockery of it if you're going there seeking life individually, knowing full well that you've cut off life between this organ and this organ, and that you have some modicum of control over these, this dynamic. So there is a being barred from the Lord's Supper. This, again, might be something of church discipline. As churches mature, you, are, you, you have a leadership who can actually say, no, actually, you're... You're preaching heresy. You're you're out of step with the spirit. Like any number of things, where a pastor might come to you and say, "You shouldn't just be taking the supper casually at the moment. There's something that we need to talk about. There's something that you need to address." That's serious stuff, isn't it? I, I, I you know don't mean to bum you out of a Sunday morning, but let me let me just say that is for the goodness and for the health of the body of Christ, and for the goodness and the health of the individual. Church discipline when it occurs, is only ever for the blessing of the body. And by that, I don't mean the like utilitarian greatest good for the most people. No, also for that individual. It's for restoration, personal restoration, like a shepherd's care of the souls. A shepherd who is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. No, no shepherds in a local congregation are above that. They all serve as servant leaders. So there's a, there's a great safety in that. That's something that you'll get to explore in the coming months and years, and it is glorious. It is wonderful to live out New Testament church together. So moving out those, uh, those enmities and those, those uh, things that disqualify you from the table, essential to the health of the body. And part of this final aspect that I want to look at, the fanfare, and you might think to yourself, well, this all sounds a bit in-house. all sounds a bit, you know... And you'd be right, actually. In, in the first, first centuries, they would have a second part of their service, where you'd have the first part of the service where, you know, anyone's welcome to look in, and then it kind of like, no, shut the doors, it's a lock-in, we're having communion. That's it. And actually, that sends a really important message. It does. It's, you know, I'm not suggesting you follow this pattern, but hear the example. That they would actually have a second part of the meeting where people knew, no, this is for the body of Christ. This is for those who have said, I want, them, I want in. I want to participate. I do want to be fed. I do want to be watered by the Lord. And um, there was, there's a very, very potent example of this. One of our elders um, named Steve Horn, who uh, might be known to some of you, um, is a great friend and mentor of mine, but he had a huge realization of this in uh, his, well, I think it essentially was his conversion moment, was realizing, he was sat in a service not unlike this and hearing someone say, whoever takes the cup in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he just thought about it. He was like, well, I've, I grew up as a kid. I went through confirmation. Do you, I don't know if you have that in churches here, but they baptize babies in, in the Church of England. And then you have a confirmation to say, oh, yeah, I meant that thing that I did when I was a baby. Um, and so with that, he's got, he'd gone through that kind of conscious confirmation class. But it, again, just as a tradition, just like you have a roast dinner in, in England, you know, you go through confirmation. Um, so he, he'd done that. And he was hearing this, you know, as, like, as someone really now seriously being moved by Jesus to become part of his people. And he went to the pastor's office and said, I'm worried about my life. Literally, I'm worried about that God's going to kill me. I'm worried about what I've done. He realized, 
I have taken the cup. I didn't mean to. I've taken the cup in an unworthy manner. I didn't discern the body. I saw the ritual that people do in England, so I just did it. He just suddenly took it really seriously. And realizing, and this pastor was great with him, said, okay, maybe you should stand back. Maybe don't take it today. Maybe actually you, you need to go and do some more business before this happens. And that barrier, realizing, actually, no, the supper isn't for me, is what made him realize, I want it to be for me. Actually, I do want it to be for me. Now, the point for you, the missional point, how does this serve your mission in Amsterdam? Well, actually, if you pastor this right, if you do this as a community, it gives a visual of the givenness of Jesus for his people that is only for his people. So people who are looking in, you're saying to them, this isn't for you, we're for you. But if you want this to be for you, it can be for you. It can be for you. It is, it is open to you. He is given. It is the grace of God ministered to you. So I don't want to go on much longer. I, I hope that I've given you a bit of an appetite. I've, I, I have. I've, I've got an appetite for this. I want to participate. I want life. I want to be enlivened again. I'm very much about that. And I don't cease to be about it. I want my sins levels to go up. I want, I want to be fully energized by the Lord in ways that I don't even know that I am deflated. Yes. That's serious. And I see some parents here. You know some ways that you're deflated. You know that some ways that you want to go out of here propelled. But there's many ways that you don't realize as well. There's many ways that you don't realize, oh, your tank's empty here, your tank's empty there. He does. He is true food. He's true water in ways that you can't even imagine wants to expand our thinking on it today. Let me just finish by talking uh, from the theologian Marcus Peter Johnson from his book, Union with Christ. He says, our mental remembrance of the significance of Christ's death isn't able and isn't meant to sustain us in our fragile and compromised states, full of the perplexities, doubts, tragedies, griefs, and despair that inevitably accompany us. Only Christ is able, and only Christ is meant to do that. Christ is the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, living Savior who gives himself to us in the gospel and continues to nourish us with himself in the supper of that gospel until that great day when we shall experience face-to-face full and eternal satiation in communion with the glorified Lord. Amen. Derek's going to come up and he's, uh, he's going to lead us. I'm going to invite uh, Dan and Britt to come and come and lead us in song and let's take this with real trust in him trust it specifically this is this is i don't want you to again i'm not trying to make you do a pop quiz or make some mental effort just posture yourself now i want to trust in him to be gracious i want to trust in him to be given for me today as he said he always would be amen